This episode of Revolution is brought to you by the team at Clearly. We're committed to helping revenue teams work better together. In today's economic environment, you're likely juggling many things. How to retain existing customers, how to secure new business, and how to do more with less resources. We're hearing this from many customers as organizations look to simplify and optimize their go-to-market strategy. The biggest challenges are around figuring out how to identify what activities to pause, what accounts to stop pursuing, and what segments will give you the biggest bang for your buck. This is where Clearly's revenue guidance system can help. It's purpose-built to aggregate data from across sales, marketing, and customer success to create a clear picture of what's working, what's not, and recommend what you can do about it. If you've been challenged to simplify, visit us at clearly.com. That's K-L-E-A-R-L-Y dot com today. And ping one of our team members. We are here to help. All right, let's get to the show. Get ready for the revolution. It's coming to you now. It's coming to you now. There's a human aspect of you know, as a sales leader, you have to like really want your people to win, right? And and if you if you get too far away from that, then that's where these these issues rear their ugly heads, and that's where I think culture issues. You know, people rec- salespeople will recognize what their leader's ultimate motivation is. Welcome to Revolution, where we dive into what gets in the way of growth for B two B revenue teams across sales marketing, customer success, and beyond. I'm Mary Blinks. And I'm Alex Krawczyk. For decades, we've been talking about how revenue teams can work better together. On this show, we talk about the opportunities remaining for teams to better align, evolve their approach, and reach new heights of growth, both professionally and personally. We're joined today by Ryan Walsh. He's the founder and CEO of RepView, the world's largest crowdsourced sales team ratings platform. I discovered Ryan first on LinkedIn through all of the amazing content he shares about the state of B2B selling. He's also local to the Research Triangle Park area of North Carolina, and we're excited to have him on the podcast. Ryan, it's so great to chat with you today. We're excited to talk through what's going on in the B2B market, how sellers and their organizations are adapting, and learn more about your background and advice you give to our listeners. Let's get the conversation started. All right, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. We're incredibly excited to have you on and talk about all things B2B selling and your take on what's going on in the market today. As we get started, can you share a little bit more about RepView and and how you started that organization? Yeah, so if if you don't know much about RepView, we collect and aggregate uh, socially sourced ratings from B2B salespeople. Uh, B2B salespeople are rating their organization. So we call it a rating. It's 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 like a survey, essentially, is what, what it is. It takes about two and a half minutes to complete. And the salespeople are, are rating their experience with their employer as a sales professional. So things like, and, and highly specific, so it's, it's highly data-driven, so not a review like Glassdoor, and it's highly specific to things that salespeople care about. So things like, what's the sentiment of the inbound lead flow? What's the sentiment of the product market fit? Uh, what's the sentiment of professional development and training I get as a sales professional? What percent of team members are hitting quota? What's the average deal size? And, and a whole bunch of other kind of very quick statistical kind of metrics or aspects that we collect from the sales professional. And the, the, I get the common question, why would somebody go do that? Why would you go leave a rating as a sales professional? 
uh, because what we do with that data is we then aggregate it and we turn the, the data that we capture into kind of highly consumable, visually appealing profiles of what it's really like to work in that sales organization. And so, so that's, that's kind of mechanically what RepView is. We serve many constituents. The, the primary constituent we serve is, is B2B salespeople. So they can benefit by understanding what it's really like to work in that sales org before they ever start. And the, the basis behind RepView was my experience as a, as a sales leader and a, and a hired hundreds and hundreds of salespeople and interviewed thousands knowing and and just anybody that interviews knows the best way to to know if you're a good fit or if if this is a right org for you is to ask a friend that works there right and if you, if you have a friend that works there but many times you don't so so repview essentially likes to we like to think of ourselves as we're unlocking that friendship conversation that you can have with a friend that works at a company but we can do it you can have that conversation with any potential company out there right and so that's that's kind of how we think about repview and really the mission is, is to empower B2B salespeople to, to optimize their career and, and, and get the most out of their career that they can by finding an org that's a great fit for them. And, and that goes both ways too, helping companies find talent that's a great fit for their org as well. But that's, that's really the basis of, of what RepView is at, at its core is, is just helping, you know, it's, it's a data plat, we're, we're a data, we're in the data business and, and we deliver that data in useful ways, particularly to, to salespeople. Makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, talking about your own background and hiring hundreds and thousands of reps, mm-hmm. I know you were at Channel Advisor for quite some time as well. And can you talk a little bit about your own experience kind of rising through the ranks up to CRO and what some yeah. of those challenges were and how, how you think about addressing it at RepView? Yeah, well, I mean, hiring is always a challenge, right? And I, I think that you know, in, in growing my career, I did, I was there for about 16 years and I worked the founders of Channel Advisor. I worked with them at a prior startup that they had founded and then they sold that and then they started Channel Advisor. And then I, I jumped on with them when they started Channel Advisor. And I was a, I was an account executive. I did a few years startup. So you do a bunch of stuff, but my lane was pretty much selling. I was, so I was good at, they, they were like, you go do that. And I was good at it. And I liked doing it. So I did that. I had the same Really, I think I, I tell people this now, I had the same business card for like five years, right? Nobody does that now. Like I need my promotion. It's been six months. Where's my new promotion? But I was like, I'm making money. So so I, I rose to the so So I was selling for five years. I went into a leadership role, kind of regional director type role, had a team of maybe 15 people or so. And then kind of that team grew to managing the US organization. And this is probably around 08, 09, maybe 2010 or so. VP of sales. And then, yeah, so this is about 2010, 11, and then maybe 80 people to 100 people. And then we grew that to 250 or so people, 230 people. Over the next few years, we had an IPO in there. And I just, my philosophy was always like, as a seller, I was focused on the art of selling. And then as as a manager, I was focused on the science of selling. We were reasonably transactional, average deal size, 30K. All right, so there's a lot of transactions happening, and and I was always I thought of it as a, as a as kind of Henry Ford production line. Know every point in the process and understand the lever for every point in the process. What could go wrong? What is going wrong? Hey, this this metric is at four point two percent. Can we get it to four point four percent? You know, and just continual improvement. And and what was good about staying within the organization for that long for me was that I was able to start that kind of mechanic process with a small team. Right, I didn't have to like. You know, it was like 14 people. It worked really well. And then it was like, all right, it's 30 people. It's 80 people. It's 100 people. 
And I built my own, I was able to build my own philosophy. And I'm not saying you can't do that by switching companies necessarily, because you can. But w- what I tell people earlier in their career is have a, you know, have a philosophy, have a, a, a system, you know, mechanical system. And I think I was, I was able to be successful partly because of that, but also I had the, you know, the credibility of also if, because I sold for five years, I was more than happy to jump on a call, you know, and, and help with the art side of it, of whether it's discovery, demo, closing, all those things. So it was really, it was really kind of foundational for my subsequent career was being in sales for so long and leading sales organizations for, for that many years. And I, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, I, I wish more founders had sales experience, to be honest with you. Amen to that. Hear that from a lot from investors as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I actually did myself. I carried the bag for a couple of years and it's uh, after 25 years, Ryan, it was still the hardest job I think I've ever had, even probably more hard than being a founder. Mm-hmm. It is being in sales is very difficult. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I forget who I read, Ryan, but uh, it was a it was someone I really respect. I know that because I I only read, I've read very, very little with the amount of time I have. And I was reading, and they said we need a new sales channel. The existing sales channels are just old. People are not responding. Our prospects are not responding. Our salespeople. And it got me thinking about you and actually mm-hmm. rep you. Mm-hmm. And I'd be curious: Have you all thought about? this concept of like networking across salespeople and you have created, I would imagine a lot of trust across your audience and salespeople want to be networking with each other and helping one another. So what does that look like for you for the company moving forward? Yeah, it's, it's really important. Um, so, you know, we have about 70,000 B2B salespeople users right now, and it's growing pretty rapidly. Um, we, we think about growth and, and, and we do, and we do commercialize the business through employers. We don't, we don't charge users for anything right. on the platform. We have some, some offerings for employers and some of those are, are specific to talent acquisition teams and, and, and a little bit also to sales leadership teams for, for data access and things like that. And what we found is, and what I think where the industry is going to change over time is, is this, the amount of dollars and marketing dollars historically at the top of funnel is, is geared at driving awareness, right? Like that's you get awareness and then engagement, you know, and you get down in the funnel. For us, awareness is our social media presence, right? So we, we, we haven't done any outbound selling yet, yet we've got a, pr- a pretty solid roster of a few dozen customers of some big name brands, and they all just hit our lead form. And, and we know like that's not necessarily always going to be the case. We will, we will go outbound and sell soon. But for us, and we always ask, like, where did you hear, you know, how do you know, where do you hear about RepView, et cetera? And it's always, well, a few of, you know, a few of the candidates that we're trying to hire talk about they use RepView during the research process, or three out of five candidates say they use Ref. Everybody references RepView, so we're focused for us. You've probably heard, you know, product-led growth, product-led growth, et cetera. We refer to it as network-led growth for us, which is we're highly focused on the data and the salespeople and growing our our ecosystem bottoms up from salespeople. And we know it's just going to infiltrate and awareness for us on the B2B selling side comes from that network led growth for us. So I think that's really specific to what we do that you can't apply that to, of course, every business. Uh, but I always, I always challenge people and marketing leaders and, and, you know, heads of sales or revenue to think about 
can awareness be driven through alternate means than maybe how you've thought about traditional way of awareness being driven? You know, last week, for example, we rolled out the Repi Awards, right? And and it was probably 60 companies got these Repi Awards, right? And it's just, so then when we go outbound, they've heard of Repi, those 60 companies at least have heard of Repi. A lot of them are putting it on their website or in their, their email signature, just like you see from companies like Glassdoor, you know, best place to work. Yay. We're excited, blah, 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 whatever G2 crowd, like things like that. Same, same type of deal. And for us, it's like, all right, what other, what other levers can we pull to, to establish this foundation of awareness for our future potential buyers? And we've been able to do that for the last 18 months and we're going to continue to do that. And it's going to be foundational indefinitely for us. Uh, so that's how we think about the, the salesperson's role in that whole thing is, they love RepView. They talk about it internally. It's shared on the Slack. Quote, quote, unquote, like, why'd you come into Rep as sales director? Well, I was on my team call and like three people had RepView shirts on. So like, what is this? What is this RepView thing? Right. So like the t-shirts. That's awesome. It reminds me a lot of, you know, some people, product-led growth, network-led growth. It's it's just about building a community who's really passionate and excited about what you're you're doing, which is easier said than done uh, when you think about that human by human, but a really cool way to scale. I'm I'm curious in kind of mentioning scale again, something you said about the art of selling at a rep level and then kind of the science side coming in at a management level. Can you talk about like how you've seen that scale, maybe even within your own organization or what you're hearing from others, like especially for first time managers? It feels like a lot of times kind of your super reps move into that first line management role and they may want to kind of take the philosophy that's worked best for them, but maybe not have all of the data points and they've got to wear so many different hats than when they move into that role. What are some of the biggest challenges you see for those first time kind of first line managers? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important topic. It's, it's, it's one that comes up a lot. You know, first the first thing is like, does that high performing salesperson want to be a manager? Right. That's I always start with that. Right. And I've promoted many, many sellers into sales manager roles over over my career. And and we always start with that. Do you want to be a manager? And I've and I've also worked with as a sales leader, worked with sellers who were sellers for many years, crushing it, and they're good with that. And and for many, some obvious, some not obvious reasons, right? Money, you're gonna make more than your manager, period, right? Like if you're doing really well. And, and and so that's fine. And the manager, if you want to be a manager, you need to be okay with that, right? So as a seller, I think what what I used to what, what I used to think about it like this, right? Like, so if I'm interviewing somebody that wants to be in management, it's kind of like, all right, well, I probably if they're already on my team versus somebody coming and call, I, I kind of know why they're successful a little bit. But like, can they explain why they're successful? Like, can you te- like can you codify that? Right? Like, te- like why is that? It's not like you're just smooth on the phone, right? That's not the answer we're looking for, right? We're looking for like why a and you mentioned art and science. Art is art is yeah. It's like you, you can read people. You can you know you can react quickly to to feedback that you get on the fly. Right, you're getting you know it's like well do discovery. Well, the best sellers are doing discovery and immediately converting that into something potentially valuable for the the, the buyer solving that problem. So, so that's a lot of the art. But then the science is like just knowing your like knowing your numbers. Right, like I know you know how everything works. If I'm a seller, I need, how much pipeline do you need? How many calls do you need to make? How many deals do you need to start in your pipeline? How, what's the close rate going to be? What can I do to, so, so I, I always used to think about, you know, the challenges of going to management is 
number one, do you have a process? Number two, can you explain that process? Number three, will other people buy into it? Because it's, it's going to be different maybe than some of their process. So as a, as a senior leader deciding, I'm looking at, all right, did they explain, do they have a process and can they explain it to me? Cool. Do I believe that that does it, does the process kind of line up with our philosophy and can they get their people to buy into it, right? If they can't get their people to buy into it, that's a problem. And one of the best ways you get people to buy into it is you built credibility by selling, right? So you're, I've been on the team three years. There's two, there's a bunch of other people and they're like, yeah, this person's doing really, really well. I'd be comfortable with them leading the org, right? I get this is a question. Do you have to be a top seller to be a manager? Like, no, but you have to be a good seller, right? Like you can't be a bottom seller for, for sure. You don't have to be number one. But if you're not, if you're in the bottom half, it's going to be tough because people's people are like, well, yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, like they're not even closing deals for themselves, and now they're going to, now their job is to help me close deals, right? So, so that's, you know, I, I think that's important, and then, you know, as you move up the chain, right? And I, just, and that's your new job. Your new job is to not make money. Your new job is to make them make money, right? And then you, by default, will do well also. So your job is to help sellers. And then if you get to the next line of management, your job is to help people help sellers, right? And it just kind of builds on that. So that's kind of how I think about those steps. Foundationally, though, it's just, do they have a process that works? Can they, number one, number two, can they explain that process clearly, mechanically? And then number three, do I believe as a senior person, do I believe that others will follow that process? That's kind of my playbook for that. So... Oh, this is good. So Ryan, what percentage of great managers have you seen that have never gone to club when they were an IC? I don't know if I've ever seen one, honestly. Like, and I'm not saying it's not possible, right? Like, because, and I'm sure, like, I'm sure if somebody, some of my old team members are listening to this, they're probably like, oh, remember so-and-so? They were a good manager or a great manager and, and they didn't go to club. I'm, I'm just, I'm like starting to kind of mentally churn through a bunch of managers that we promoted over the years. And, you know, I, I, I think I would, I would fall back on the response that you, you don't have to be number one, but you have to be pretty darn good. And, you know, going to club is another example of you're going to now be leading these people. These people are like this person, you know, went to club and like, I'm cool with that, but I, I don't. I, I off the top of my head and I'm missing people off the top of my head. I can't think of anybody that we moved up and we promoted quite a few people over the years on the SDR yeah. team, AE team, you know, enterprise, mid-market all, you know, in my career. Yeah. I, I, uh, Mary and I are both big sports fans and I'm a, I'm a baseball fan. And I, I think a lot of, uh, and an ex baseball player. And I think so often about how often we promote the amazing players and we put them as like coaches or managers um, for major league baseball and they fail. Mm-hmm. And well, it's, there's are two very different things, but I think in sales, that's why I was curious about asking that question, mm-hmm. like carrying the bag for me, like I mentioned, I did it in my career. Like it actually, I, I can, I can sympathize now with the pain and I feel like, you know, anyway, it's, it's, it's really yeah. interesting. I'm, I'm, you need to add that to so to some of your data, some of your survey questions. Mm-hmm. When you're, how many yeah. of you have you ever, yeah, are you a sales manager now? And uh, did you ne- did you never go to club? Nobody will admit it's not, to it. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Well, it's and to your point though, and you kind of hit on this, it's not just the one percenters. Like it's usually that depending on the organization, like the five to ten percent, you might not be the best seller in the company, but you've gone to club. Yeah. So you can certainly understand what goes into that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And and, and to be clear, like if you haven't gone to club, like I think you get, that doesn't mean that doesn't disqualify you. But if you haven't, and 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 by the way, there's plenty of comp like there's plenty of incredible salespeople. This is part of RepView. Plenty of incredible salespeople that just won't have the opportunity to go to club because the product market mm -hmm. fit isn't there. You know, there's some other external factors impacting their ability to win regularly, whether that's, you know, mostly related to product market fit, you know, or, mm -hmm. or leadership. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, I, that's part of RepView. I think to myself, man, think about, because I've seen people do really well, make a lot of money. And I'm like, there's people at every organization that could be doing that, but they're just not in the just right. Just not in the right organization. Right. Yep. Yep. Which is why I love that that's a data point that you're collecting and building that awareness, like contextual awareness for, for sellers. I'm curious, like just in the general kind of state of B2B selling overall, what you're, what you're hearing today, we have someone on our team, uh, Johnny, and he, he said to me the other day, it's often said reps will take action based on two things, what they're paid to do or what their manager tells them to do. Mm which I think goes a little bit back to kind of art and science and, and thinking through scientifically what you would kind of coach people to do. What, what are kind of the top two or three big things you see impacting sellers and their ability to kind of quote unquote succeed? Yeah, I mean, that's a good quote. I would say that the, the problem with that lies in the fact that those two things like they, they need to be aligned, right? That's the problem, right? If, if what I'm paid to do is different than what my manager is telling to do, then like, all right, well, what, what's going on here? Like, it's just, you know, indicative of an organization that has some underlying challenges with leadership and communication and structure and understanding how to build a comp plan. Like everybody should be aligned around that. Right. So like, so that, so that's problematic. I think, you know, that's kind of the micro response I would say to that. And then you kind of the macro response would be, I think over the last few years that, you know, we have a lot of, there's frankly, there's been a lot of venture capital dollars flowing into high growth companies in the, some of these later stage VC backed companies are raising huge amounts of money at enormous valuations. And, and the simply, they're simply doing it because I, I'm now, and now I'm setting myself for the next huge valuation, which is even huger, whatever word you want to use. Uh, and it's going to be a billion dollar raise. There's, there was billion dollar VC raises for these stuff. And, and it's just growth at all costs. And then you look at the model and what gets lost a lot of times is like it, in the earlier stages of raising venture capital money, you're, you're looking at the TAM and the bottoms up and, the, and this. And then you get ahead of that. And it's just like, well, the TAM has kind of got, has been forgotten. Every organization, particularly those that are at these high growth companies, Every organization is going to reach a tipping point whereby their quota capacity, i.e. number of salespeople, number of team members, number of bodies on the sales floor has, has somehow exceeded the addressable market that can support that quantity of people. And so if you dump $500 million into a 300-person company and they need to get to 1400 really fast, a lot of those are going to be salespeople. The, the CFO is saying, well, every salesperson we add is going to drive $318,000 in new bookings this year, right? And it's like, well, yeah, up till now it has. But when you dump 250 more on, more on top of that, then, 
you know, what, what, what are we doing on the product? What, what is increased? What is improved on, you know, on the product side? And so there are certain companies you could dump 10,000 salespeople and you're good, right? And, and there's not a lot of those. Salesforce, right? I mean, it's a, there's just a huge market, right? But you look like even Channelvisor, right? We were selling to vendors selling stuff on marketplaces, right? There's not, and they had to be selling like 800 to 1,000 a year to a million dollars a year, right? Yeah, there's so many of those. There's not that many of those, right? And so it's like, we, that's why we, we when I left, we we're like 115 million. They're, they just got acquired private equity, like 180 million. Like, it's a really good business, profitable, but like, you know, the, the, it was going to be hard to get to like 400 million. Right? It just wasn't, it just wasn't like the mechanics of that business. And and I think part of Channelvisor, when I was there, we, we kind of, towards the end, we kind of knew that, right? But what has happened with sellers recently in the last few years with these dollars is like, you're not knowing that and you're dumping on this money and you have to hire 500 salespeople. And that's why we, and so quota attainment has gone down. People, the turnover is super high. That's the macro factor in tech, at least, you know, that, that has caused it. It's, it's really the tipping point of quota coverage related to product market fit and TAM and companies, every company gets upside down somewhere. It's just a matter of where that is. And most companies, you know, and, and that moves, the, 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 the size of that moves over the years, right? You build more product functionality, the market expands naturally. But are you, are you, are you adding salespeople and catching up faster than product can build something or market can evolve? So that's, that's really a lot of what we're seeing right now. And now there's a correction and, you know, there's, there's been some, you know, we've seen some of the ramifications of some of this and, you know, companies raise money, like we're going to raise and then we're going to go IPO in, you know, 18 months. Right. And well, guess what? You're not going IPO right now. Right. So what do you have to do? Like you layoffs, right. Because the run, because you're not, you know, you don't want to raise a down round. And so this is where we are right now. And, it, and unfortunately, salespeople have taken a big brunt of this, you know, kind of jerked around, like hire a bunch of them. Stop hiring now. Fire more, and then like, oh, the market turned around. Hire them back. That's where we are, and we post about that a lot on LinkedIn, and we get a lot of, you know, people. It resonates with people. They get it when we put it in those terms. So I, I recently heard someone Ryan say that the sales manager is the most important role in a B two B company. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I suspect that that comment was made out of the, you know, reams of evidence that say people leave managers, right? Like, which is fair. And I get that. I, 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 the, the, what, the, the thing that I would, it's a really important position, right? Sales leaders are. What I would counter that with, though, is that uh, there's, a, there's a, I don't remember who made this quote up. I might have stolen it or hacked it together, but I'm sure I did which is like you throw a great management team at a bad product and the product wins every time. Right. And so what, what I mean by that is you can have a great manager, right. And, you know, they just, maybe you hit that tipping point or maybe you got the crap territory and your manager's doing everything they can. It's just, it's going to be hard to win, honestly. And then you could have a crap manager, but get, but, and they could just, you know, but the, the, you're in a, in a B2B sales org, the sales manager, unless it's really small org, they're not probably creating the comp plan, right? They're, they're just helping administer it. They're kind of managing you, making sure you're doing what you need to do in these big orgs. 
So they could be terrible, but you might have a great territory and an incredible product and you're, you're still growing. Like every startup grows into this and you have this great phase where you, and, and the manager, you could hate your manager, but you still be really winning and selling a lot. So I think there's, you know, I think there's quality of life thing. Like if your manager sucks, like, yeah, it's probably, you could maybe find somewhere else that's good. But I, I don't like, you know, it's hard to kind of stack rank what's, what position is more or least important. I'm sure there's people would say, well, your rev ops person is more important or your, you know, your VP of sales who creates a comp plan is more important or like who's the CRO who's kind of doing air cover with the executive team for sales initiatives. Like they're the most important maybe, or, you know, or, or my SDR, right. If I've got an SDR that, you know, they're all important. You can make a case for every one of them, but uh, you know, I, I kind of also go back to like, you know, none of that really matters if you're, you know, if, if, if the demand isn't there for what you're doing. And by the way, we have, we have data from salespeople um, that, that they, they tell us what's most important and product market fit is by far number one versus incentive comp plan, culture and leadership, uh, diversity and inclusion, training, base comp, even product market fit is number one. Kind of feels like if you don't have product market fit, it's hard to to do the other things well, especially from a compensation side, right? Like you're you're going to be running into challenges time and time again. I think a lot of the data, I love following all of you on LinkedIn and the stats that you publish are really, really helpful. From a comp perspective, I feel like one, just the overall declining number of reps who are able to hit quota kind of quarter over quarter continues to go down. I think the other big data point that I've been thinking about too. I think it's less than half of sales leaders, like they need their team to hit their own numbers, right? Like it's like half the time that they, their total number of reps and they're good, right? So like, what's the incentive for them to kind of coach the, the other half to go above and beyond? So can you talk about like kind of all of the factors that get wrapped up into quota and how everyone gets paid and what you see happening in the market right now? Yeah. Well, I think I think there's definitely like a period of time that we're in right now where and, and we post this on LinkedIn and we're starting to do a little bit more on Twitter as well with with some of these stats and, and definitely like the, the numbers are trending down for quota attainment over the last six months across every division that we have SMB enterprise mid market uh, SDRs are reporting that they're having a harder time hitting quota as well. And and so all that is dropping. I, I think I think it'll level out. I think it, macroeconomic conditions as they improve, maybe that's mid mid next year or later next year, it'll 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 be rebounding as well. I think that so so there's that, and we will continue to post that information, and users can access a, a number of the, a lot of that information, not only aggregate but at, at the company by company level, which is which is valuable to them as they think about career choices. But you know, I guess quotas and like yeah, you don't have to have a lot of people hit your number like that, that. That is problematic. And it's the way it's always been though. It's, it's not all companies do it this way, but almost all of them do. And, and, and by the way, I I'm going to describe a situation. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with this, which is you have eight, say you have eight salespeople on a team, right. And, and say they have $500,000 quota, whatever, if it's recurring revenue. And then, so that's eight times 500,000. So that's, that team carries like assuming their capacity, uh, 4 million, right? So my manager, the manager of those eight people, what's their quota? Maybe it's 3 million, right? And so first of all, like, I don't have an inherent problem with that necessarily. It's kind of like, well, I tell you to have more pipeline because the deals won't close. Well, one of these reps might leave, whatever. 
that's fine. And then, but then you have like, you know, three, then you have four managers, right? So 3 million times four, right, is 12, right? And then the director has 10, you know, so there's a $2 million buffer there. And maybe there's four directors rolling up to the VP. So that's 40 and the VPs is 30. But then the gap, if you, if you calculate the actual gap, you have like, it's like, um, 60, it's 64, no, 128 reps for the $30 million VP quota. So that's 64 million for the 30 million, right? So you get into a massive, and it, and, and there are organizations that are that, that, you know, big of a buffer. And I know some that don't have any buffer at all, you know, if, and then you get a few reps, maybe they blow it out, get 2 million, right? So I'm looking at like, I, I got 25% of my number off three out of my 128 reps. And then I'm like, if I can just get a, you know, dozen more to whatever. So, so that's, that's problematic. And, and it, it does create what you described, Mary, which is the, the concept of like, well, I, you know, I'll just knock out the bottom 15 and I'll bring in 15 more. And if one or two of them rise up, then that's cool. And I'm just constantly churning. And then, and then as sales leaders, you also become the same issue that I described with the CFO, which is you're looking at it more as numbers in the spreadsheet versus people that are like, ultimately really trying to win. And, and I think that there's a human aspect of, you know, as a sales leader, you have to like really want your people to win. Right. And, and if you, if you get too far away from that, then that's where these, these issues rear their ugly heads. And that's where I think culture issues, you know, people, rec- salespeople will recognize what their leader's ultimate motivation is. And if it's not, you know, if it's in the wrong place, they'll know that. And, and, you know, so I, I think a lot about that. And that's how part of when, when I started RepView, it was like, all right, I can, and I said this a lot, I don't, you know, as a CRO, you can have like, you can influence, like, I want to really help people and advance their sales career, but it's like a couple hundred people, right? Well, well, what if we could do it for like a couple hundred thousand people over the next few years? And so we try and think about it. We try and think about it like that. And it, you know, continues to kind of help push our mission. So, so Ryan, you have a lot of experience where CRO, like you said, walked up through the entire organization, now a CEO. Hindsight, what would you have done? What is the one thing that you would have done differently, maybe at Channel Advisor, that maybe now you brought with you to 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 rep you? Yeah, I mean, I didn't a lot of this stuff I'm talking about now, like I I look back and I'm like, yeah, like that was a problem there too. But it wasn't always as obvious when you're doing it, right? Like you know, I get asked the question a lot, like, what do you, like, what's your regret or what do you, you know, what was wrong? Like, why was your org good or bad? Or like, what was the problem? And we really never, like, we had the same problems. Like we, like as a CRO, like I could talk about it and I can see it. And I think I I did want to help my team. And genuinely that was my goal. We still had like in the U S probably 20 to 25% attrition on our like account executives in the non, in our, in our international sales regions. It was probably 30 to 35% attrition rate. Some of the factors that we talked about here were, were kind of there as well, right? We were, we were at the time bumping up against that kind of TAM, right? And, and, and there were a lot of conversations like, Hey, how, like we need to hire more salespeople, right? Well, maybe we get more of our people, you know, winning instead of hiring more like it, but there was, you know, well, we know each body adds X amount, you know, so, so I think, you know, I don't know if it's a regret, but it's just like my, my sense of clarity now is, is way better having stepped back, being away from it. And I think that, you know, 
and not, you know, I'm not necessarily looking for another CRO job anytime soon, you know, but, but if I guide other folks in a similar position, I, I try and tell them that unless you've done it a couple of times and seen it a few times, it's hard to have that clarity of what's really happening right underneath your nose, you know? So, so I just look back, you know, and I've, you know, that's one metric that I could never figure out and get right was like the attrition metric. I mean, we were never, we, you know, nothing was perfect. Of course we had our challenges, but that I look back at that one metric and I'm like, man, because literally like every time, like I get a note in the evening or some sales managers like, Oh, so-and-so's leaving. I'm like, man, it's like, I took that personally, like, not like they were an affront on me, but it's just, I took it personally from the standpoint of like, what I am I not them. doing? Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. support them, right? There was something I could have done better, you know? So that's, that's kind of the one thing I look back on and like, man, you know, if I had another chance, I'd think about that a little differently. Speaking of reps leaving, one of the things that I've seen recently is that variable comp, like pre-pandemic at least, like a lot of people were chasing the highest OTE that they could possibly get. And there seems to be some indication potentially that in the market, reps are now a little bit more focused on like working someplace where they can get to an achievable quota, have a solid base, be able to grow, of course, but like potentially more security versus like chasing the monstrous payout. Do you feel like you see that coming through in your data? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even as recently as six months ago, you know, sales professionals are getting reached out on, you know, uh, 10 times a week, right? If you're an experienced, particularly in tech and these high growth verticals, you know, and, and so you could e- you could immediately get OTE, you could bump it up pretty quick, pretty fast, like, and that was definitely happening. Sometimes it worked out really well, you know, sometimes it didn't. I, I, I think we used to, I used to talk to people all the time, like, and this part of what we say is like it, it, OTE is really meaningless, right? Like if you can't achieve it, you know, it's like, you know, we, we joke, we call it either off target earnings or we call it faux TE, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it, but it's not really OTE. If only 30%, if only 30% of people are hitting, it, it's not really OTE. So I think, I think that was like, and, and then you hit that, everybody's growing. And then, and then we hit this wall where like, we can't grow anymore. And not only, so yeah, you got the big OTE, but now nobody's hitting it and then they're doing layoffs. And so it's like, you know, the, the research, I think, I think you can get, you can get distracted by the numbers, right? Yeah. If you're going to go from like 70 K base to like 125 K base. Okay. Like it's hard for anybody to be like, okay, don't do that. Right. Like, because like just the base alone. And, and there were, there were things like that happening, right? Like that was not like those types of things were happening. Uh, but more commonly, it's just like, oh, I can go from 160 OTE to 200 OTE. Well, you know, a 160 OTE, you could still make three, four, five hundred thousand dollars depending if you're the right position. And a 200K OTE, you could still make 115K. Like if nobody's closing any business, everything dries up. Like, you know, and not only that, but what then you're going to have to figure out how you explain two or three short jumps on your resume, which, you know, is explainable. It's fine. It's the world we live in. But you know, I think OTE is abused probably in in many recruiting pitches. Um, you know, and and um, we've got many memes and LinkedIn posts poking fun at at uh, at OTE and whether or not it's real or and that sort of thing. FOTE is a new one. I hadn't heard that one yet. Yeah, FOTE. I wrote that one down. I like that F-A-U- one. F A U X T E. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> 
anything else big from kind of a B2B selling perspective that you feel like is kind of shifting the market right now? Like there's a lot of people throughout trends like, oh, AI this or, you know, you know, 1099 thing that. And that, like everything that people say and suggest about B2B sales is, you know, I, I, we've we've heard it all before. I, I think that the biggest factor that I that I think will be a factor over the next two to three years as a B2B seller is to continue to really understand and get better at researching the product in the market of, of what you're going to sell. And I think years ago, people weren't that good at it, but it wasn't as big of a problem because of these growth, because nobody's like trying to, you, you know, you're growing at a, at a moderate rate that's equivalent to your addressable market. And if you're adding salespeople 15 years ago, then it was probably a comfort level that, oh, we've got a territory that can support that person, you know? And, and so things didn't always work out, but, but I don't think you have this issue now of like, bringing in a bunch of salespeople. And, and, and so I, I just, for me, that that's really has been top of mind this year. And I think it's going to be top of mind for me the next couple of years as well. It's just how that plays out with the market. Uh, there's always going to need be a need for B2B sellers period. They're just humans want to connect with humans. The deals are complex. Somebody has to navigate that. Somebody has to shepherd it. Some of the mechanics of it might look a little different, but there's always going to be a skill set that will be highly compensated to help companies grow their revenue. That's just kind of how I think about it. What What are your thoughts about speaking of mechanics? And Mary, great question about the trends. Is the PLG? I mean, what you know, it's been something we've talked about here for the last few years. I I like to think about it as sales directed versus sales assisted. How is that affecting? And what what kind of information? And it, it also does have to do with product market fit. There's a corollary there. Yeah, not, I mean, not every company. I, I think it's great. I mean, we talked about for RepView, it's like PLG or NLG network led growth. And it's like for us, I, I say it to our team all the time. I'm like, this, this is our awareness kind of section of our funnel. Like we, we just, you know, post this stuff and we share this stuff and we build this great community and network of users who, who shares it for us. But like a lot of companies just don't, there, there is no way to do that. Like you don't have a community and you know, if you're selling B2B software, right? Like unless you're some massive company, you know, I referenced Salesforce, right? Wherever is like, and salespeople are your users or something like there, there's a lot of companies that just have to go sell B2B. Like you just have to go like, you know, do it the old fashioned way. And so I think PLG is phenomenal. And I think I love the trend and I think it's great. And if there's a way for you, for you to do it, then do it. And what does that mean? Like, I don't know, like PLG, like, you know, is it like usage based where you can, you know, start and, or is it, you know, you know, it, that model, but when you have that like usage, it's every, every deal is like, well, let's just get in, get a little, you know, and then spin it up and PLG, but like that doesn't apply to every company. Right. So like, and I don't think it's a majority of companies that applies to either. I think it's a majority of companies that it still will not apply to in B2B sales. Will that change in five years? I don't know, maybe, I mean, you know, then, then you, you, you start thinking about like metrics you're reporting to your board and metrics you're reporting to investors. And like, was that really a deal or is it, you know, you know, and there's PLG metrics you can use too, but yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm a proponent of it. I just, I, I don't want people to get carried away and say every company shouldn't do PLG, right? Like that right. Every, no, you can't do PLG. I don't, you know, not every company can do it you know, in, in my opinion, you know, maybe reasonable minds could debate that, but 
And if, if you say every company could do it, maybe you're changing the definition of what PLG is. I, I was going to, you know, along those lines too, is that something that you all are collecting in terms of, you talked about product market fit, the types of products, I think you have, I think I saw on your data, you know, obviously have segmentation, like is this company SMB, mid-market enterprise, mm-hmm. is there also data in there about whether it's a direct, uh, direct selling motion or sales assisted motion? We do not currently have that, although that would be what I would consider a kind of company kind of company foundational metric, which are things that we don't need our users to supply to us. Um, and so over the last six months, we've been adding a lot of those uh, things like uh, buyer persona uh, and pivoting the data on that. And, and these are some of these are, uh, you know, we're building in there because they've been requested by, you know, companies and employers who, who want to see data in that way or want to recruit from certain companies that have experience. So um, I would say it's probably likely we would see some of that stuff in our in our platform next year. That that kind of stuff is super easy for us to layer in. Like it's, you know, you know, we just go do the research and we have a research team internally that does all that work for us. Along the same lines of PLG and thinking about that, I one of our podcast guests I think was on and talked about 70% of the buyer's journey now, a lot of people want to self-educate online before ever kind of raising their hand to someone in sales. I'm curious. So here at Clearly, we talk a lot about revenue being a team sport. In my own background, like as more traditionally a marketer, I've been in sales for a while. But as a marketer, I always felt like sellers were kind of like, I've got this. I'm good. Just help with the messaging, help with the deck, help with the product stuff. How do you like, do you see that changing? Like where, whether it's PLG or just in general with kind of digital transformation and people having access to more info and thinking about communities as a sort, as a source to gather information, do you see marketing? I I saw something from Forrester yesterday that said they're predicting that marketing is going to start or demand marketing teams are going to start reporting into sales very soon. Do you get that sense from a sales perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like yeah, the team sport kind of concept is good. I think like if if marketing is if demand marketing is reporting into sales, it's no longer sales; it's now revenue, right? It's not the same thing, right? So certain chief revenue officers own marketing. I did not own marketing. Sometimes you own other chief revenue officer can own something else. It can own account management or customer success or they. So it can complete in both ways. But if, if marketing reports into sales, it's no longer sales. I think what salespeople should say and what they a lot of them do say is like, like I want the, the lead as far down the funnel as possible, right? Like, you know, salespeople, the least work I can do to make the most money <laughs> is what they're going to say. So I think that marketing as a definition is, you know, you can define it how you want, right? Like driving pipeline for demand-based, like demand gen marketing. Like you're driving pipeline, you're driving awareness, like how far you're pushing. At some point, there's a, at some point, a salesperson, a human being like engages, right? And so what you, your decision point is at what point do they engage, right? And and if the buyer is doing 70%, do you wait and wait until they get you know, your demographic and your behavioral triggers all sorted out? And, or do you do it further up the funnel? I think, you know, those are decisions at an individual company level, but I I think that you know, the, the, the salesperson, there's a balance of like how much time you spend 
like how far down the funnel before the salesperson engages, they could engage right at the very beginning, like of any of the list, but then they're going to, they've got a million people on there. So you have to decide. And I think that um, it's definitely a team's revenue is a team sport, right? Product is driving features or PLG and then marketing is driving awareness. And then maybe there's an SDR team and they're driving action. And then the salesperson is driving, you know, closure, you know, it's a company sport, not even just a, revenue org sport. Do you ever see a day where maybe some of those other team players who come in earlier, let's say in a PLG motion, would be comped in a way similar to sales? Like where they're getting a portion yeah. of that deal? I mean, I'm product, product marketing, like I'm a fan of as many people as possible having some variable component to their compensation, right? And it's up to the leader of the organization, whether that's a CEO or whether it's a CRO or whether it's some some leader. To, to determine like what, how that variable compensation is, is driven, like what action, like what behaviors do I want to drive with this variable compensation? Right. And so if it's product, like I, I'm probably more in favor of aligning that with top level outcomes, like versus did you miss this date or did the sprint slip three times out of 13 last quarter or something like that? Like, I'm looking at outcomes and the same with, with marketing too. Like, cause if you, that's the problem with sales and marketing alignment is le- hey, you're measured on leads and you're measured on this. And it's like, well, you the leads, well, the leads suck. And you know, that's the age old thing, right? Well, it's just, you know, it's easier at an early stage company, you know, rep view kind of everybody's looking at a couple, three, four, two, three, four things. And it's like, this is what's going to make or break this company as a whole. Um, and so everybody needs to be looking at these every day. As it gets bigger, it gets a little trickier, but I still think even a, a component of it should be in these big metrics, these key metrics. In your organization, are you going to have marketing roll up under our revenue team? Our organization is pretty unique because we don't even do like B2B marketing. Like we do B2C marketing, right? Mm-hmm. And then that actually is our B2B marketing, right? And so we haven't really even engaged. I, th- I think... You know, I, I don't. I don't think we've made that decision yet necessarily. I think we are just focused on B two C marketing, and so we've hired specific profiles of people that are that are non, you know, product marketers. They're not SaaS marketers. They're growth marketers. They're user generation marketers. They're conversion funnel optimization marketers and, and SEO marketers. I'd say that like we have some huge team, we have two marketers, but, um, <laughs> but that's what they, their content, you know, you see the content we kick out all the time, right? We have a content person's kicking out stuff all the time. It's fantastic. And we know that is like driving our net. We have network marketing, like we're marketing the network. And so awareness comes from that side of, of the house. Like, you know, so, so I think, I think, you know, I don't know if we, we we don't have plans to invest heavily in B2B marketing in the near future. Hmm. Cool. Were there any other questions that you feel like would be really important for the audience or topics to just be aware of in the B2B selling space? It goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. Like, should salespeople start? Like, I'm a huge fan of, is it, I actually did a LinkedIn post today. I can't, I can't even remember topic oh is my my ceo is like super pumped about writing a huge commission check because i said there's you know people you know sometimes c-level people get squirrely about you know writing the big commission check right and 
And I said, let me guess. They were, they used to be in sales and they were like, yes. And I was like, I knew it. <laughs> so should salespeople, salespeople, the sales as a profession provides a, a fantastic foundation for being a senior executive uh, because you're exposed to one of the hardest things that you have to do. It just becomes challenging because very few salespeople have the ability to, to write code. And so you have to find partners and things like that. But I'm, I'm always excited to, you know, to see salespeople that are founders of companies that they're trying to grow just because of that reason. So, yeah. I love that. Last question. Any funny, you've had a lot of experiences and as a founder too, going to go off of Alex's experience and kind of learning from him over the last year and a half, two years I'm or gonna so. I'm going to be very interested to hear where this goes. Um, do you ever have any like nightmares related to selling or things that come up for you that are like recurring revenue dreams or like not really? Yeah. I mean, I, I worry more about growth broadly versus like, so for we're in a unique business, right? Because we're still focused. We're a data business, right? If we don't, data is our gold. And if we don't continue to get data, you know, then the value, you know, of what we're doing is is going to be in jeopardy. And so like, you know, I don't work, I, I take the approach of like, if we continue to build that, the revenue will come, period. Like we've got a lot of interesting opportunities. Thankfully, I don't, I don't really dream about that stuff very often, <laughs> you know, sometimes like, hey, but it's really related to just growth in general, right? Like not so much like, you know, did I did a deal like a deal went sideways or DocuSign had a night, nightmare that DocuSign went down on the 31st of Jan, of December. And and we, you know, like that, that that's not that's not typically my style. My style is just like, you know, we got to keep growing. I worry about it, not even in my dreams, but in my all day long. That's all I as, as a founder. Sure. You know, Alex, you're the same way, like it's all consuming right? All the time, all consuming, no matter what, it's all you think about all day, every day, day and night. Yeah. Could you stop talking about it now? <laughs> I'm thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, Ryan, I don't think, I don't think a lot of people, I, I always say people are like, what does it be? To, what does it take to be a founder? Or what's it like to be a founder? I said first, and I mean this very genuinely when I say this, I say, you have to be crazy. You have to be a little bit crazy to become a founder. And the second thing is you really do have to be very passionate about what you're solving for and the community for whom you're solving it. Otherwise, cause there are those moments where it's just, it's, it's like Sisyphus pushing the, pushing the stone up the hill. I mean, you're going to just going to continue to get that. That's going to come back down on you every single day. So I, I have lots of daydreams and day daymares, I guess you could say <laughs> like you, fortunately, I don't wake up too much. I usually have the nightmares like, usually end of quarter or something like that. They're usually very seasonal, quote unquote, for me. Yeah, Time-based. Yeah, sleep like a baby. I wake up crying every three hours. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's awesome. Ryan, thanks for being on. It's a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, for sure. Glad to be on. Great. Thanks for having me. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on the Revolution Podcast. It was awesome learning more about your background and chatting through the current state of B2B sales. If you're listening in, be sure to follow Ryan on LinkedIn for even more great content and wisdom in the coming months. Thanks, Ryan, and thank you for listening. This show is brought to you by Clearly. If you are ready to embrace revenue as a team sport, where all your teams work better together, 
visit us at clearly.com. That's K-L-E-A-R-L-Y.com to learn more. Next week, our journey towards the B2B revolution will continue with another great guest. Until then, I'm Mary Blinks. And I'm Alex Krawczyk. We'll talk to you next week.